Hey, this morning we have got uh, a special guest with us. I know many of you know our Carmel campus pastor, Steve Wallen, but maybe some of you are newer and have never uh, met him or, or heard from him before. Steve is a great uh, communicator, and I'm so thankful that he's here this morning uh, to speak with us. Steve and, and I were standing talking before service this morning about schoolyard bullies and schoolyard fights, and uh, he's got some great stories about that. I don't know if he's sharing any of those this morning, but he's cracking his knuckles right now. So uh, as we take up our offering, we celebrate that. Would you also welcome Steve Wallen as he comes and gives our message this morning? I, I thought Ben was going to challenge me to a fight for a minute there. I'm like, dude, uh, take a chill pill, man. It's cool. Hey, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, open them to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one that looks something like this on the floor around you. Open that up. It's page 820 in this Bible, page 820. If you have your own Bible, um, I don't know what page it's on. Just uh, Philippians is near the back, all right? Um, And also, if you don't own a Bible or if you don't own one that you can read, please take this one home with you. It's our gift to you. We want you to be reading not just on Sunday but during the week as well. Hey, uh, uh, you know, get this beautiful winter weather. Thanks for coming today in the cold and the snow and the ice. Where was this around Christmas, right? Uh, it was 50 degrees at Christmas, and now, it's, and now when everybody's ready for it to be spring, it gets to be icy and snowy. Um, I was out uh, the day after Christmas and noticed that all of the uh, shopping malls, shopping centers, everything, all the parking lots were full. I don't know if you guys do that, but I, uh, I did some research a couple weeks ago and found that the day after Christmas, December 26th, is the third busiest shopping day of the year. Did you know that? Like, so, in other words, the day after the biggest gift-receiving day on the calendar, many of us crazy people line up again at 7 a.m. the next morning to go buy more stuff. Is that crazy to you? Now, I know some of it is driven by uh, gift cards. How many of you got gift cards for Christmas? Most of you probably, yeah. Uh, Same at Carmel. Uh, And some of it's driven by returns and exchanges. People want to go, I didn't get the right size or whatever. But I think so much of it is just really wrapped up in our American culture. And and it's almost like thumbing our nose at the people who gave us gifts and, and saying, what you gave me wasn't enough or wasn't good enough. And so I'm going to go in the next morning and go buy more. Isn't that crazy that we do that, that we go out after we get all these gifts and go? And then I see something like this kid right here. Take a look at this. Oh, excuse me. Oh, I have a present for you. No, stay, stay still, okay? Okay, this is for you, okay? <laughs> oh, open it. Open it. Open it. What is it? He just goes for it. Like right there, just we're going to open this thing up and we're going to eat it right here. You know, so how that video came about, uh, his dad posted that on YouTube. And how that video came about was it, it wasn't Christmas. It was another party. And all these people were getting gifts. And that kid didn't have any gifts. And so uh, the dad said, well, I'm going to teach him. I'm going to give him a banana, and he's going to get upset, and I'm going to record it on video to show all of his friends, right? And so that's what he thought. But what he didn't count on was that that little boy knew the secret to being content in every situation. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we finish up our series called In the Meantime. We've been asking this question over the last three weeks. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? 
You know, what do you do when you're in a situation that it doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon? What do you do when you're in a situation where there's no clear solution in sight? There's no hope in sight. There's uh, no indication that anything's going to change anytime soon. What do you do? You know, in your life, maybe it's a financial situation. You, you made some mistakes or you lost your job or you had an emergency and, and uh, just when you start to get ahead, something else comes along and knocks your legs out from under. You take one step forward and then one step back and it doesn't look like you're ever going to be able to get ahead and maybe you think like your financial dreams aren't going to come true. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Maybe it's a marriage situation. The marriage has been bad for a while, but he doesn't want to divorce and she doesn't want to divorce. There's no clear way to get anything uh, reconciled or changed anytime soon, but we're, we're not really loving one another. We're not really married. We're just kind of coexisting. Uh, there's no love in the marriage. There's really no hope. There's no shared goals, no shared values. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Maybe you got a bad report from your doctor or you're in the midst of treatment, and you're in the midst of chemo or radiation, and there's progress, but it's not great progress. And maybe you're not gonna die from it, but the doctor says it's not gonna get better anytime soon. It's gonna be chronic. You know, there's, there's nothing you can do. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Maybe it's academically. You know, if you're a student, you messed up at one point. Now, you're only now beginning to understand that, you know, that you chose the wrong school or you couldn't get into the right school or you didn't pay much attention to your grades before, but now they're so bad that even if you got like straight A plus pluses for the rest of your academic career, there's no way uh, you're going to get your GPA up enough to matter. You'll you'll never go to med school. You'll never go to law school. You're going to have to look at plan B for your career. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Well, for many of us, our first inclination is to run away, to to abandon ship, to leave your family, uh, drop out of school, drink yourself into oblivion, uh, stay high all the time, you know, and maybe uh, you've even thought about like ending your life, that that would be the answer, that everybody else would just be better off if I weren't around. But you know, you know that that just leads to bigger problems and more messes for them to clean up. And you, you, you know that, but you just feel so completely powerless. What do you do? Eventually, maybe you come around to the place that many of us come to when we're in a situation like that. We, we come back around where we decide, you know what? It's all God's fault. That, that he got me in this situation. I'm here by his will. And you get to the place where you start telling yourself some lies. We talked about these week one. We talked about these three lies that we tell ourselves when we get in these situations. And they're these. I'll never be happy again. Nothing good can come from this. And there's no point in continuing. And in the first week of the series, Andy said something that was, Andy Stanley, uh, we did a video if you missed it the first week, uh, Andy Stanley preached and it was, he said something so good, so powerful, and, and so many people told me last week that this was so meaningful for them that I thought we'd repeat this. Uh, he said that even when it seems like it, that God is not absent, apathetic, or angry. You know, don't equate God's silence with absence. Just because you can't hear him, even though you can't see him, he's at work in your life. You know, don't equate his absence, his seeming absence with apathy. He's not apathetic. In other words, you know, God didn't just like set the world in motion and say, okay, good luck, everybody. Have fun. You know, I'll be here if you need me. No, God is actively involved in your life. He's interested in what's happening to you. And he's not angry with you. It's God's eager desire that you come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. His word tells us this. And I, I don't know about you, I've never known anyone who entered into a loving relationship because somebody was angry at them. 
I don't know if you have or not, but you ever heard anybody say, man, I love that guy. He was just so mad at me that I had to love him, right? No, God's not like that. He's not angry with you. He desires his desire. Second uh, uh, Peter tells us it's his desire that everyone should come to repentance and come into a loving relationship with Christ. He's not absent, apathetic, or angry. And sometimes we have a hard time with that because we have kind of created in our 21st century Western philosophy, uh, you know, in the Western church, we've created this conflict between the idea of a good God and bad circumstances, right? So like if there's a good God and he loves good people and I'm a good person and if I go to church and I sing some songs and I give some money that nothing bad should happen to me. And if you read the New Testament and you see the first Christians, they don't have this same conflict that we have. They don't see a conflict between a good God and adversity. In fact, what you see is the first Christians enduring persecution. Some of them are crucified for their faith. They're, they're stoned for their faith. They're, they're thrown into prison for their faith. And you never ever read anybody in the New Testament saying, why do bad things happen to good people? But in the 21st century, 20th century, in the Western culture, we've kind of created this, this conflict between a good God and bad circumstances. But I know Paul told you last week, and, and I hope what you'll see today in the time we have together, there's no conflict between a good God and bad circumstances. And, and through the passage we see today, I think you're going to see that even in the midst of unbelievable adversity, we can find contentment. And so I'm going to share a passage today written by a man named Paul. Uh, we told part, Paul to part of Paul's story about three weeks ago, but if you weren't here, because I think it was the week after Christmas and many of you weren't, uh, or if you have a hard time remembering stuff, uh, let's just briefly review Paul's history. The Apostle Paul I'm talking about in the Bible. I'm not talking about your lead pastor, Paul. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. He's the one that said what I'm going to say today, so I know that's confusing. But uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, was one of the greatest enemies of the early church. His uh, goal in life was to see the flame of Jesus extinguished, and he did whatever he could in his power to, to see that accomplished, uh, even if it included violence toward his followers. In fact, the first time we meet Paul uh, in the book of Acts is uh, Stephen, who's one of the first deacons in the church, is being stoned to death, and scripture tells us that Paul was there giving his approval. In fact, what we see is that Paul's job was when the first Christians were being killed, when they were being persecuted, uh, they were being stoned, for instance, it was Paul's job to hold their coats so their coats wouldn't get dirty or they wouldn't get blood on their coats. So this is the, the guy, Paul, that we're going to hear from here in a minute. So, but, but this one time, Paul is on his way to Damascus, which is in uh, Syria today, but he's on his way to Damascus to uh, extinguish the flame of some more of these Christians. And he's confronted on the road by Jesus himself. Now, this is a real problem for Paul because Paul knows Jesus to be dead. In fact, all these people, these believers are going around saying that they've seen Jesus alive. And that's why Paul wants to get rid of them. Because they're saying that he's alive and Paul knows for a fact that he's dead. And so it's a real problem when this Jesus that he knows to be dead shows up in front of him on the road. And he's telling him that Paul is going to be used to advance the kingdom of God in places where it hasn't gone yet. And so Paul's got this real dilemma, right? He's got this real problem. So after he recovers, which probably takes a while because if that happens to you, it'll take you a while to recover. You know, when Jesus comes into your life in a violent way, it takes you a while to recover. 
So after Paul recovers, uh, he becomes maybe after Jesus, the greatest evangelist the world has ever known. He, he goes around, he spreads the gospel to places it's never been before. He's preaching about Jesus. He's planning churches everywhere he goes. But about 10 years into Paul's ministry, so about 10 years after this happens, uh, something else happens. Uh, Paul is, uh, becomes a wanted man. The emperor in Rome is a man named Nero. Uh, Nero's not a nice guy. Uh, Nero is probably best known for having his own mother killed because she didn't approve of him marrying his second wife. And so not a nice guy. He doesn't like Christians. And remember the guys that Paul used to work for that were going around stoning Christians? Well, they're still around. And so now that Paul's one of them, uh, he's not in very good favor. And so what happens is they have this problem because Paul's a Roman citizen, so they can't crucify him. They can't kill him. Uh, they can't really beat him too bad. So what they decide to do is just throw him in prison. So they lock him up and throw away the key. And so Paul's in prison. There's, there's no charges. There's no trial date. There's no hope of getting out. The apostle Paul is in the, in the meantime moment. There's nothing you can do. What do you do when there's nothing you can do? Well, Paul was a real go-getter. I mean, he was always busy. He was traveling, preaching, encouraging, planning churches. And, and now he's grounded. He's not going anywhere. But he decides there's got to be something I can do. And so here's what he does. He decides to write some letters. He's got all these churches around the known world that he's planted. And he says, you know, while I'm here, I can't go out and preach. I can't go out and encourage people. But maybe if I just write some letters to them, uh, I'll encourage them. We don't know how many he wrote, but we know there are at least four. And how do we know that? Well, because we have them today in our Bible. There are four of these letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison. They're sometimes known as the prison epistles. And there are these. Uh, they're Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now, epistle is just a fancy churchy word for letter, all right? And so if you hear that, don't get all freaked out by the word epistles. But these are letters, four letters that Paul wrote in prison. So just keep this in mind for future reference. You may not need this now, but if you've ever had any encouragement, any guidance, any wisdom from any of these four books in the Bible, you can pretty much be assured that the guy who wrote them had worse circumstances than you have. All right, so Paul's in prison. He's not getting out anytime soon. He decides to write these letters. And let me tell you what's amazing about this. First of all, the words that Paul wrote are amazing. Some of the greatest words uh, that have ever been written were written by Paul while he was in prison. Uh, words like, husbands, love your wives, even like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So wives, if you like Ephesians, if you like that passage, you should know Paul wrote that while he was in prison, right? Great words. Now, here's what else is amazing. These are the most translated and probably most memorized words ever known to man. In fact, these words, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, have been published more than five billion times, more than any other book. Now, here's another amazing thing. If you think about this, what are the odds that these four letters could even make it out of the first century, let alone still be here 2,000 years later for us to read. It almost makes me believe that the Bible is divine, <laughs> right? That it's inspired by God. Because think about this. Paul writes this letter in prison, and in these letters are words that are the reason that he's in prison. See, emperors at this time were writing letters, and they would write multiple copies, and they would have some of them sealed in a vault for posterity's sake so that people would find them. And some of those letters we don't have anymore. 
But these four letters, Paul writes one copy, gives it to a messenger and says, take it to this place far away, good luck. And they not only make it to their destination, but somehow they're preserved and they're kept for us so that 2,000, more than 2,000 years later, we can still read these words. How amazing is that? Now, here's what we can gain from this. This is what I hope you take away today. Paul had no idea what hung in the balance of his decision to remain faithful when everything around him told him to quit. Have you ever thought about that? Like everything about, around him tells him to quit. Like, hey, Paul, you've had a good run. 10 years in ministry is pretty good. You planted a lot of churches. You've seen a lot of good things happen. Now you're in prison. Take a break. Take a holiday, man. Have a vacation. Take, take a week off. Enjoy your life. I mean, I know you're in prison. You probably can't really enjoy it, right? But, but like, take some time, dude. Just chill, chill out. But that's not what Paul does. And in fact, this isn't even the worst thing that's ever happened to Paul. He tells us that he was shipwrecked three times and he was left floating in sea, that he was bitten by a poisonous snake, that he was stoned, the old-fashioned kind, not the kind that people get today. He was beaten with a rod. Like five times he was, received 39 lashes uh, with whips and he could give up. But he didn't. He remained faithful. And because of that, we have these four letters to encourage us today. And, and he had no idea what hung in the balance of his decision to remain faithful. When you feel like giving up, when you feel like everything around you tells you it's time to quit, you have no idea who or what hangs in the balance of your decision to remain faithful. So Paul decides to write these letters, and in one of these letters, the book of Philippians, which we're going to read from today, I told you to turn there. I know it's been a while, but hopefully you're there by now, Philippians 4. He gives us the secret to surviving an in-the-meantime moment. He's writing to believers in a church in a place called Philippi, which is in modern-day Greece, kind of up in the Macedonia region of Greece. And what's happened is they've sent him a gift. So they've sent Paul a care package while he was in prison. We don't know what was in it. Um, maybe some food, maybe some uh, things to read, maybe gifts from uh, other places from Philippi. But Paul is responding. And so that's the context which we're going to read today. We're going to start in Philippians 4.10. Uh, that, so that's the context. He says this. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So I think, I think what Paul's doing here is a little bit... Um, it's a little bit passive-aggressive, actually, if you read this. Because what he says is, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. But then he backs off. He says, well, I mean, like I know you were concerned, but you just didn't have a way to show it. That's what he said. So, so he's, he's saying, uh, he's saying I, I know I wasn't there with you, so you couldn't really show me concern. But thank you for sending the package. And then verse 11, he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So he says, hey, thanks for sending that. I do appreciate it. But I want you to know that I didn't need it. So I want you to know that I don't really have a need for things anymore because I've learned to be content. And, and then Paul is going to go on to tell them that this is the secret to surviving and in the meantime moment. He says this in Philippians 4.12. He says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, rather living in plenty or in want. And so Paul says, this is huge. He says, hey, I've been in need. And when I was in need, I didn't get so down about the fact that I was in need because I've learned how to be content. And, and I've had plenty. 
I've been in seasons of abundance. And when I had plenty, I didn't get so caught up in having a lot because I knew it wasn't going to last and because I learned the secret of being content in every situation. Which, by the way, did you know that it's sometimes much harder to be content when you have plenty than when you have a little? I mean, we live in, a, in an area that knows what it means to have plenty, right? Hamilton County, we know what abundance means. We drive down the street, we see abundance. Uh, we see abundance in the lane next to us. We see abundance on the, on the corner uh, in that neighborhood, right? We know what it means to have plenty. And you drive around, you look around, and you see a lot of people that are content with what they have. So much of our life is caught up in not being content and trying to chase after whatever the next thing is. And Paul says, hey, here's the key. You need to learn to be content when you have plenty and learn to be content when you have nothing. Here's what he gives them. The secret to surviving an in-the-meantime moment is learning to be content in every situation. Learning to be content in every situation. Now, here's what Paul didn't say. He didn't say your problems don't matter. Just, just brush them off. Just, just forget about it. You know, just pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Be an overcomer. Like, ignore them all. Whatever. Paul's not really a whatever kind of guy. I don't know how much of the New Testament you've read and how much you've seen Paul. But Paul is a, he's not a whatever kind of guy. He is a passionate, fiery individual. When he was persecuting Christians, he wanted to kill them all. And when he became one, he wanted to save them all. That's Paul, right? He's not a whatever kind of guy. But instead, what he said was the secret to being content, and he said there is a secret to being content in any and every situation. And whether you know it or not, and whether you believe it or not, Paul writes, I know there is a secret to being content in any and every situation because I have found it. Now let me ask you something. If, if you got to the place where you believed there was a secret to being content in every situation, wouldn't you want to know it? Like, like, wouldn't you take a class on that? If we offered a weekend class on how to be content in any and every situation, I think a lot of people would sign up. Wouldn't you pay money for that? Think about, how, before you answer that, think about how much money you spend trying to be content. Think about how much money we spend on a house that we think will make us content, or a car that we think will make us content, or on clothes that we think will make us content. We spend a lot of our money and a lot of our energy trying to buy contentment. Wouldn't you pay a little bit for a course that would teach you how the secret to being content in any every situation? I would. Paul's going to give it to us for free. He says there is a secret to being content. And it's one of the most quoted verses in all of scripture. And it's one of the most misquoted, misapplied uh, uh, verses that I've ever seen. And so here's what I want to tell you. I want to beg you on it. Please do not take this verse out of context. Because if you, if you rip this verse out of context, you will miss the secret to being content in any and every situation. Here's what he says, Philippians 4.13. I can do all this. All what? Prison, the stonings, the snake bites, the shipwrecks, the writing of the letters, the, the persevering, even when it's, I'm supposed to quit. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And if you grew up in church, you may know that the King James Version says, through Christ who gives me strength. Here's effectively what Paul says. He says, when you take on the life of Christ, you get the strength of Christ. 
But when you start submitting your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, he gives you his strength to help in those in the meantime moments. In other words, I like to say it this way. In our weakest moments, God gives us his strength. So when you feel like you don't have the strength to go on, maybe you don't, but he does. And when you know that and you believe it and you start to live it in your life, you get to the place where you don't just stop it, I can't. Like, I can't do this anymore. I can't go on. I can't find a way out. You don't stop there. You might acknowledge that, but instead you say, I can't, but he can. I can't, he can. So when you dig yourself deep into that financial hole, you feel like you can't get out, you can't, he can When your marriage is failing and you don't think you can make it anymore, you can't, but he can. When the disease has ravaged your body and you feel weak and you doubt you can even get out of bed some days, you can't, but he can. You can do all this through him who gives you strength. This leaves some of us with a real dilemma. I know what some of you are thinking, and I know this because I've had these conversations several times over the past couple weeks, and it's this. If there is a good God who loves me, I I don't know that there is, Steve. I I don't know that I believe that, but but I'm just going to, I can tell you believe it, so I'm going to take your word for it, okay? If there's a good God who loves me, and he has the strength to do all things, Okay, right? If God's not absent, apathetic, or angry, and he has the power to change my situation, here's the question you're wanting to know. Why won't he? Why doesn't he? If God loves me, and he has the power to change my situation, why doesn't he? That's a great question. It's one I wrestled with when I was a seeker. In fact, when I was finding my way back to God, that was one of the questions that, man, we just, if God, if you could just answer this question for me, I, like, I'm going to follow you because I want to know, you know, when, when really good people have really bad things happen to them and you have the power to change their situation, why don't you? When I was a seeker, I wrestled with that question, but you know what? God pulled me in. He drew me in and never, ever answered that question for me. It's a question I wrestled with as a believer. Like when bad things happen, God, why, why'd you let that happen? And it's a question I wrestle with even more now as a pastor because I sit across the table from some of you and I hear your stories and I help you wrestle through your situations and I sometimes find myself praying, God, he didn't do anything wrong. She didn't do anything wrong. God, they didn't do anything wrong. Why is this happening to them? And here's the conclusion that I've come to and maybe this will help you. Maybe it won't. Maybe this won't satisfy you. But if he can but he doesn't, there must be a reason that we don't understand. Like there's a plan that we can't see the whole plan. We don't, we can't know the whole thing. We can't possibly see the whole thing, but it's our problems are a small part of a bigger plan. Now, so let me ask you this. How many of you have ever been um, involved in a fitness program that you stuck with for a long time? Raise your hand. I'm not talking about like it's January 17th. I've been almost three weeks. Okay. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm saying like three months, six months a year. Yeah, raise your hand. Look, good, a lot of you, good. Uh, so let me ask you this. You're in this fitness program. You're, you're making change. You see your body changing, right? Things are happening. You feel good about it. Like you're looking yourself in the mirror every once in a while. I'm like, mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and then you go to go work out, to run, whatever you were doing, did you ever have a day where you go, this is stupid. Like, why am I doing this? Did, for those of you who raised your hand, you ever had those days? Yeah. But you kept going, right? Why did you keep going? Because you knew there was a plan, right? There was a plan that was bigger than that day's work. And you knew that even on that day when I didn't feel like doing the work, I was going to trust the plan, right? For me, I'm the kind of guy that I need a goal in front of me. I need an objective. I need a plan. If, like when it comes to fitness, I love going to the gym. I love running. I love riding my bike. But if I'm going to stick with it, I got to have a plan. I, in fact, what I need is a trainer. What I need is somebody, a personal trainer, who will make a plan for me and tell me, hey, here's what you got to do today. And I'll go do it. I'll go do the work. But I got to know that it's part of a bigger plan. I don't have to understand the plan, but what I have to do is I have to trust my trainer. I have to trust the person that puts the plan together. And when you come to the place where you trust the plan and you understand that every day's work is just a little building block in that. I know today's stresses, right? Today's work, the things that I'm doing now are just helping to build part of a bigger plan. Paul understood this. Paul knew this. This is why he was able to say that there's a secret to being content and ending every situation. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. Because here's what he said. Paul, even in his difficult time, he knew that Christ had a plan for him. Look at this. Look at what he wrote in Philippians 1. He said, what has happened to me, that he was put in prison, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And he says this, as a, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He says, it's not just me that can see this. Everybody around me knows this is what's happening. I've told them all. Like, this is my... This is my, uh, my, I'm in prison for Christ. This is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. This is going to be my mission now, is I'm going to reach everybody in this prison for Christ. Could it be that you're in an in the meantime moment for now, for a reason that you can't possibly understand, but God is going to use it to develop you, to make you stronger in your faith, and to bring glory to God? Could it be that, that your pain is part of a bigger plan and you can't see the whole thing right now and you don't know how it's gonna end, but, but what would happen? What would change if you just had the attitude, you know what, I'm gonna learn the secret to being content in any and every situation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the hard work today and trust that he's gonna use it for my good and for his glory. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and real estate investor in Chicago in the late 19th century and along came the Chicago fire of 1871, wiped out all of his real estate holdings. He was uh, completely broke. And as he began to rebuild the entire country, the United States fell into a recession in 1873, which kept him traveling on a cruise that he and his wife had planned for their family and their four daughters. Uh, she went ahead with the cruise and she and her four daughters. And while they were crossing the Atlantic Ocean, and Spafford was back in Chicago trying to rebuild uh, some semblance of a financial life. The cruise ship crashed with another ship and sunk. And all four of their daughters died. His wife, Anna, after safely arriving aground in Europe, sent this tragic two-word telegram. It said, survived alone. Spafford had to immediately drop his business dealings that he was working on in Chicago and take the next ship over to Europe to meet his grieving wife. And as he sailed across the Atlantic, 
He penned the words to one of our most famous, most loved hymns. He wrote, it is well. It is well with my soul. There's a secret to being content in any and every situation. And if we believe there is a good God who wants good things for his children, and we believe that he can do all things, then we can be content in knowing that even when we can't, he can. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful for that truth. I'm thankful that, that we can do all things through your son who gives us strength. And God, even when we don't see it, even when we're not sure we believe it, just knowing that you say it gives me hope. And, and for some of us in this room that have been followers of yours for a long time, God, we, we've seen it in action. It doesn't help us from doubting the next time we get in an in the meantime moment, but we've seen it happen. And we've seen it with us. We've seen it with other people where we've seen people who have such great strength and contentment, even in the worst circumstances. God, help us to be like that. Help us to remember that when we're in those in the meantime moments that we can do all things through you. And God, it strikes me that there are people here in this room that don't know that contentment, that have wrestled with that and because they don't have a relationship with you. And Lord, I just pray right now for people in the room who haven't made that decision to follow Jesus. God, would you work in their hearts this week? Would you draw them to you? Would you help them to see that there is a secret to being content and it only comes not through what we can buy, not through what we can see, but it only comes through your love and your grace. God, help us remember that this week. Help us to be able to look around at all of our circumstances and remember that our hope is in you and to be able to say it is well with my soul. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.